seven weeks ago, we started this series by talking about a growing number of people in this country that are walking away and staying away from faith. And that's the reason why we have done this series. Now, the people that have walked away from faith and that are staying away from faith, uh, they have done so for a lot of different reasons. But the one thing that they all believe is that their life would be better off without God and without faith. I think that many of them have walked away from faith and are staying away from faith because there is a misunderstanding about Jesus and a misunderstanding about Christianity. I think there's this misunderstanding inside and outside the church as we've talked about concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what he meant by what he said and the significance of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And I think because a lot of people have misunderstood that, uh, they have walked away from faith or they're just staying away from faith. And so the reason that we're doing this series is that if you're one of those people that have stayed away from faith or you're getting ready to walk away from faith or you have walked away from faith, I hope perhaps that at the end of this series, uh, you understand with a bit more clarity exactly what Jesus came to start, that Jesus started something new and something better. And maybe for the first time you begin to understand, you're beginning to understand what Christianity is all about. You're beginning to understand who Jesus really is. I think a lot of people misunderstand those questions because the church has misrepresented uh, the answers to those questions. And I'm, I'm hopeful for those of us who call the Creek Church uh, our church and that we're followers of Jesus, I'm hopeful that we will not misrepresent who Jesus is, what Jesus meant by what he said, and the significance of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. I hope that we represent what it was that Jesus came to do, that he started something, he inaugurated something that was new and something better. It was revolutionary then, it's revolutionary today. It was controversial then, it's still controversial today. And so that's why we've been talking about what we've been talking about for the past seven weeks. And so I, I thought long and hard about what's the best way to land the plane? What's the best way to end this series? Because even though this is the end of the series, it is not the end of the discussion. We're gonna continue to talk about this because this is a mindset that we have to begin to reverse. And this is a way of thinking that we're gonna have to learn how to think regularly in. We can talk about this in a series and talk about how Jesus came to start something new and better. And it's easy to talk about it and begin to understand it for a while, but it's so easy to slip back into the old way of thinking that we've talked about also throughout this series. But today, I want us to think about Jesus because Christianity is better because Jesus is better. Jesus is more than better. Jesus is best. And Christianity is new and better because of Jesus and because of what Jesus offered and because of what Jesus did and because of what Jesus points us to. And so many of us, we know the story of Jesus and we could sit down and we could give a two or three minute version of the Jesus story to our children and perhaps a few minutes of that story on the adult version to some of our friends. But I want us to hear the story of Jesus all over again so that we understand that Christianity and the thing that Jesus started is better because of Jesus. Jesus is the best thing we've got. The best thing about Christianity, the best thing about our faith, the best thing about the church, it isn't you, it's not me, it's not music, it's not lights, it's not buildings, it's not budgets. The best thing that we have to offer is Jesus. And so I want us to think about Jesus because Jesus, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, whether you believe that Jesus was the son of God or not, there is something that all of us can agree on whether we follow him or not. And the thing that we can all agree on is this right here. Jesus showed up onto the pages of history in the first century and the world has never recovered from it. Now, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to acknowledge that that is true. That Jesus showed up on the pages of history in the first century and the world has not recovered from it. 
H.G. Wells, not a Christian, historian, he says, hey, I want to say something, and I need you to know that, first of all, I'm not a believer in Jesus, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but H.G. Wells, the historian, said, Jesus is irrevocably the center of human history, that Jesus is the dominant figure of human history. And again, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to acknowledge that. You don't have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God to acknowledge that. And perhaps a good step for you would be just to acknowledge that Jesus has impacted the planet in a way that no one else has, and the planet has not yet recovered from the impact and the influence of Jesus' life in the first century. It's a story. It's an unbelievable story, this thing that Jesus came to do, this thing that Jesus came to start. And the story of Jesus, his life, his miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and what happened consequently after that is the greatest story that the world has ever known. Another historian who's in the New Testament, a guy by the name of Luke, he was a follower of Jesus. He was a medical doctor. He was also a historian. Luke, who wrote a biographical sketch of Jesus' life, he wrote a biographical historical document about the life of Jesus. He did so as a result of him interviewing eyewitnesses that had rubbed shoulders with Jesus. They had saw Jesus, you know, had seen Jesus. They heard Jesus. They put their hands on Jesus. These were eyewitnesses to the life and the times of Jesus. And Luke, who understood that this story of Jesus seems too good to be true, it seems a bit far-fetched for a thinking, rational, logical person to believe that any of the stuff that Christians claim to believe actually ever took place. Luke understood that. He was a man of science. He was a man of linear, rational, logical thinking. And he decided that it was prudent, it was best for him, wise for him to write a biography of Jesus. And so he interviewed everybody that had anything to do with his birth, anybody that was ever there that heard Jesus teach. He interviewed the people that, you know, supposedly had been healed by Jesus and was there and saw miracles of Jesus. He talked to the people who watched Jesus get arrested and suffer and die. And he talked to the people who claimed to see Jesus after he was raised from the dead. When he wrote down that biography of Jesus, somewhere around the year 58 to 60 AD, probably 58, but no later than 60 AD. When he wrote that document in the first century, it was copied and copied and copied and copied and recopied and recopied and recopied and recopied. And it eventually, eventually in time became a book in the New Testament that we call the gospel according to Luke. But when it first showed up on the planet, Luke wrote it with his own pen and it was a biographical historical account of the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so this is what Luke said as he tells us and he tells the world and he tells his first century audience the story of Jesus. He says, I want you to know that you can trust what I'm writing. And this is what he says. He says, many... Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And when he says many, he's talking about Matthew because at this point in time, by 58 AD, Matthew had already written his gospel. He had already told his story about Jesus from his point of view. Also, Mark, who had gotten all of his information from Peter, and so basically Mark is giving us his gospel account or his biography of Jesus from the perspective of Simon Peter. Matthew has already written his account. Mark has already written his. And Luke says, I know that you already have copies of what they have said. I know this. But just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses, so I know where we've got this stuff from. We've got it from the people that were there. We got it from the people who saw it. We got it from the people who experienced it. 
They were servants of the word. He says, with all of this in mind, I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I interviewed people. I checked and I fact-checked. I crossed back and I checked again. I carefully investigated because when I wrote my biography, I did so with a skeptic in mind, with a person who says, you know what, I just don't think I can. It just doesn't, you know, it's too good to be true. He says, I've carefully investigated this. Everything from the beginning and I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So he's writing to one particular person, but knowing that it was going to be read by a wider audience. And he says, this is the reason I'm writing it. So that you may know the certainty. Everybody say certainty. The certainty. So that you would know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. He says, what I'm going to tell you about is something new, is <laughs> something better, and something certain. Because if it's just new, and it's just better, and it's not certain, who cares? But if it's new, and it's better, and it's certain, then you should care, and I should care, and we all should care. And he says, that's why I'm writing my biography. And Luke wanted us all to know that, hey, what I'm about to tell you, this story about Jesus, this new and better and certain thing, it's not something that I got from a guy that got it from a guy that got it from a guy that read it from a napkin. This is not what it is. I have talked to the people involved. I want you to know, Luke would say, this is not a fairy tale. This is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. This is not fable. This is not myth. This is not legend. This is written within the first generation, within just a couple of decades of the events. This is the result of an ongoing long-term investigation. And Luke says, I'm going to write it all out for you so that you know that it's new, that what Jesus came to start was better and then what I'm telling you about the new and better thing is absolutely certain. It is history. He says, I've done my homework. I've checked. I've cross-checked. I have thoroughly investigated everything. I've thoroughly investigated the whole thing from the very beginning. And so Luke tells us a story, a story we all know, a story we've heard many, many times. And I want you to hear the story because I want you to be able to tell the story. I want you to be able to tell the story in a compelling way, just like it happened in a compelling way. I think us Christians ought to be able to talk about Jesus in a way that is attractive. I think we ought to be able to tell the story of our founder, our savior, our Lord, our master in a way that is sensible, in a way that is logical, in a way that causes people to stop and at least consider what they are hearing. And so Luke tells us a story, a story that we all heard so many times. And he begins with the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem to the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And when he writes the Christmas story, when he writes about the birth narrative of Jesus, he tells us a story about the birth of Jesus, but he anchors it to history because that's what historians do. He anchors it to a period in time, a place in time, history. He anchors it to a period of history when Octavian, also known as Caesar Augustus, was the emperor of the Roman Empire. He says that's when Jesus was born, when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the Roman Empire, but also when Herod was king over all Judea. And so he names for us people of history, and he identifies the period of time in which Jesus was born, which had to be somewhere between 4 BC and 6 BC, and somewhere before those, you know, that little window of time, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He tells us about how Jesus was baptized by one of the greatest and most well-known figures of his day, a man by the name of John. It was actually his cousin, a guy that we call John the Baptizer. And when Luke tells us about the baptism of Jesus, 
He tells us in the most detailed of way. He doesn't tell us in a way that sounds like fable or sounds like a tall tale, but he writes us in the first century to a group of people that when they first read the biography, they would have known whether or not what he was writing was true or not. And this is so important for us in the 21st century to keep in mind that if it can't be true in the 21st century, it couldn't be true in the first century. And if we know it's untrue in the 21st century, they would have most certainly know, known that it was untrue in the first century. And so he writes about the baptism of Jesus in the most historical way, in the most detailed way. And this is what he says. He says, in the 15th year, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. He says, this is when this took place. I'm going to give you eight people of history to which historians of all stripes, believer and non-believer, can see all eight of these people are known to be in power in the late 20s AD. All eight are legitimate figures of history. And Luke says, this is why I want you to fact check me. I'm writing in such a way so that you know that what I'm telling you is not only new, it's better, and it is certain. And he tells about how Jesus was baptized. And he tells us about how Jesus, he went about teaching, and he was a rabbi, and he was a person who taught with authority, not like the religious leaders of his day who lacked authority, but Jesus taught in a different way. He was witty, he was funny, he was a masterful storyteller. Nobody could tell a story like Jesus. And some people, according to Luke, regarded him as a prophet. Some regarded him as a miracle worker. And then other people over here, they regarded him as a heretic, a blasphemer, and an insurrectionist. Luke tells us this story about how Jesus was betrayed by a friend. And consequently to that, he was arrested and then he was tried. And then he was executed at the hands of the temple, the Jewish temple and the Roman Empire because both realized that he was a threat to them. And then he was hung on a cross. And Luke says, when he was hanging on the cross, he records these words. It was now about noon. Again, details. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and this, this is so important to what we've been talking about. And he records what seems like a benign detail, like who cares, what's the big deal? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That is the, the curtain in between the holy place and the most holy place. The curtain, the veil, that on the other side of the veil, that's where the Ark of the Covenant had you know, resided. That's where God was said to dwell on earth inside the temple. And he says that when Jesus died, the veil, the curtain was torn in two. And it was a picture, it was a symbol, it was a gesture from God to the world that I'm moving out of the temple. I'm moving out of the temple made by the hands of man and I'm gonna move into bodily temples. I'm gonna move into followers. People who place their trust in my son Jesus, I am going to place inside of them my spirit. And so God says that the temple, you know, is rent in two because God was coming out. God was coming in search of man as he always has in pursuit of a relationship. And it says that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, when we left off last week, we made the point, and this is a big deal, that when Jesus died, there were no such thing as Christians. 
When Jesus died, there were no believers in Jesus as the son of God because sons of God don't die. There was nobody who believed that Jesus was the Messiah when he died on the cross because Messiahs are not supposed to die. And if you're a good Messiah, you don't die, but bad Messiahs, they die all the time. And so when Jesus died on the cross, nobody among his inner circle, nobody among his outer circle of disciples were saying, oh my goodness, thank you God for Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. No, nobody thought anything had changed, though everything had changed, they just didn't know it yet. His followers left hopeless, fearful, and despondent and disillusioned. The movement that they thought Jesus started had most suddenly and obviously stopped. And on Friday night, they mourned his death. And on Friday night, they feared for their own lives. And on Friday night, they thought they could be next. Maybe they slept, perhaps they were not able to sleep that night. On Saturday, they felt the same way all day long. Everything that they had thought Jesus was, every hope had been dashed in light of his death. Jesus was dead, now what? Jesus was dead, so what? We, we've wasted three years. We look like fools. But Luke says, Friday and Saturday, that was the reality. But on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away. And when they had entered, because that's what anybody would do, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, hold on, time out. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you have to believe that. Because all they had to do in the first century was produce a body. That's all they had to do was produce a body of Jesus. That's all that had to happen to stop the whole thing. Stop it in its tracks. Historians... There were non-believers, historians of all backgrounds, regarded the top of their field, all historians basically who are serious and to be taken seriously, agree that Jesus' tomb was empty. Now, I'm not saying they believe in a resurrection, but they believe that the tomb was empty and that the body was never found. And that history, history was altered as a result of that empty tomb. And Luke tells us, though, that this was a resurrection, that Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples and they touched him and they spoke with him and they even shared a meal with him. And that's how we ended last week. That's where Luke ends his biography with them eating breakfast together. And he tells them to go and tell the world about what they have seen and what they have heard and what they have experienced. And then Jesus ascended back into heaven. But that was not the end of the story. That's not the end of history. That's not the end of your story or mine. And so Luke, once he finishes his biography of Jesus 1.0, he writes the follow-up, he writes the sequel. He writes a biography of the early church, of early Christians, the followers and the apostles of Jesus. We call it the book of Acts, but he wrote the book of Acts for the same reason that he wrote the gospel according to Luke, his biography of Jesus. To let us know that what Jesus came to inaugurate, it was new, it was better, it was certain. It was new, it was better, it was certain. Let's all just say that together. It was new, it was better, it was certain. One more time. It was new, 
It was better, it was certain. And so we have the book of Acts. It's another book of history. He tells us the historical account of the early Christians, the early church. And I can tell you about how many cities he names, how many local politicians he names, how he incorporates local slangs from cities that he would have not known had he not been there. Luke becomes a traveling companion to the apostle Paul. And he tells us about what happened after the resurrection. And this is where the story continues. And this is why we care. Because not only did Jesus say it's gonna be new and better, but his followers came along to say, it's certain. Nobody cares if it's new and better if it's not certain. But it's new, it's better, it's certain. And so this is how he begins in the book of Acts. He says, after his suffering, Jesus, he presented himself to them, to his disciples, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Because if you saw someone die, you would need some convincing proof before you actually believed that they had died and come back to life. Say, well, how convinced were they at the end of him giving convincing proofs? They were willing to die for it. They were willing to die not for what they believed, but for what they believed they saw. People will die for a lie. I'll spot you that. People will die for a lie, but nobody, no reasonable person, no sensible person will die for what they know is a lie. And if any generation of Jesus followers would have known that the resurrection was a hoax, that it was a lie perpetrated upon the first century audience and the centuries that came after, it would have been generation 1.0. It would have been Peter. It would have been James. It would have been John. And it would have been the rest of the guys that would have known. They were convinced to the point of the fact that they were willing to die for this. And so Jesus talks to them, he gives them proof, and then he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to come. And he tells them, he says, when you go to Jerusalem, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You're gonna be my witnesses, not my policemen, my witnesses, not my enforcers, my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for those of us here right now, 21st century, last Sunday of October, 2017, this is an incontestable fact of history. This absolutely happened. This absolutely happened from the cross of Jesus. When he died, his, his followers scattered. They were not believers. Something happened on Sunday. They believed that they were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, because they know that Jesus has died and come back to life, they begin to reinterpret the cross. They begin to look at Jesus' death on the cross as something that they could have never conceived of in and of themselves. That in some way, God had sent Jesus. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. He died in our place on the cross. They couldn't fully wrap their heads around it, couldn't fully articulate it. But Jesus died in our place. He took our penalty so that we could be set free from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And they changed their entire way of thinking, their interpretation of Jesus' life, his teaching, his death on the cross was now made in light of the fact that they had watched him die and come back to life and everything, everything, everything changed. And that's exactly what they did. Exactly what they did. They filled Jerusalem with the story of Jesus. We watched him get crucified. You crucified him. <laughs> but God raised him from the dead. And they filled Jerusalem with the story of Jesus. Not so much his teachings at this point, 
But the fact that he died and the fact that he was raised from the dead. Five years later, persecution breaks out against the church at the hands of the Jewish temple. And they scatter and they take the message of Jesus to Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus told them to do. A year later, 36 AD, six years or so after Jesus was crucified, a man by the name of Saul, who was a protector of the temple and a persecutor of Jesus' followers, he thought it was a blasphemous movement. He was converted significantly and suddenly on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, Saul becomes who we call the Apostle Paul, who will write nearly half of the New Testament. He's going to write letter after letter after letter to cities all along the Mediterranean rim of the empire because he, with some friends, took the message of Jesus, the message that he was sent by God, he died for sins, he was raised from the dead. He took it to the Roman Empire and churches sprouted up all over the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean in Galatia and in Ephesus and in Athens and Thessalonica and Berea and all of the places And so now the story of Jesus and the message of Jesus, it's getting out there wide, just like Jesus told them to do. By 57 AD, by 57 AD, about 20 years or so after Saul is converted, this is just about nearly 30 years after the resurrection. By 57 AD, we know according to Roman history, not Christian history, but Roman history, that by 57 AD, there were Christians in the senatorial class in Rome. That means that in just that short period of time, the story of Jesus had gone from Jerusalem all the way to the heart of the empire in Rome. And not only to the heart of the empire, but to the upper crust of Roman culture and society. The other disciples of Jesus, they took the message of Jesus far and wide to places like India and Africa and Persia, as far east as Afghanistan, as far north as Armenia and northern Turkey and places of the such. The gospel message of Jesus, it was getting out there. And all of the original disciples who were there that day, save John, would lose their life, would give their life. They would be marched before magistrates and kings. They would be beaten Some of them beheaded, some of them ran through with the sword, some of them burned at the stake, some of them stoned, some of them crucified, but many of them would give their lives, not for what they believed, but for what they believed they saw on that first Easter. Now, they all gave their lives, and we should care about that, because if anybody would have known if it was really true or not, it would have been those guys. And no reasonable person is gonna die for what they know is a lie. Fast forward just a little bit to 160 AD. And in 160 AD, a governor, a governor in a Roman province by the name of Pliny. Pliny writes to the Roman emperor Trajan. Trajan has commissioned Pliny and other governors to stop out this Christian movement. It is not consistent with Roman values. We don't like it. Get rid of it. And Pliny writes a letter. It's preserved in antiquity. It's it's, it's just there. You can check it out. And he writes back to Trajan and says, hey, this Christian thing, this this sect, this follower of this, you know, this followers of Jesus thing, this movement of Jesus, the movement of the Galileans, it was called the way, it was called lots of different things. But this Christian thing, it's spreading like a contagion. That's the word he used. It was spreading like a contagion, like a virus. So much so, he notifies his emperor that the pagan temples are basically empty. He says, our temples are empty because they're becoming followers of the Nazarene. 
because they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Another doctor who was a historian, who was Roman, he was not a believer. In Rome, at that time, you couldn't conduct autopsies. And so he would hang out when the Christians were getting ripped apart by the animals. He would hang out and, and you could look inside the body and you could examine the body and see the organs and see the bones and see the tissue. And so that's what he did because it was against the law to perform autopsies, but he could go into the Colosseum and could go to those places. And when Christians' bodies were ripped open, he would examine the bodies to learn. And this is what he said. A non-believing pagan bystander who watched Christians get marched before the authorities of their day. This is what he said. He said, for fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. For fearlessness of death, they're not afraid of death. Why were they not afraid of death? Because they'd watched a man die and come back to life. And the first generation of people who saw that, and the first witnesses that had saw that, had seen that, they were the ones who told another generation, which told another generation. And they were so convinced that what Jesus started was new, it was better, it was certain. They had no fear of death. They would not recant what they believed about Jesus. And what we learn from not only Luke's biographical account of early Christianity and history at large, we, we learned this about the first followers of Jesus. They were fearless of death, hopeful for the future, and faithful in life. And the world was better because of it. Now think about this. You may not care, but I think you should. Here we are today talking about a Jewish carpenter from the illiterate part of the desert in the Middle East. What was considered the backwater of the Roman Empire. What historians like to refer to as the armpit of the Roman Empire. And here we are talking about a carpenter's son. How, how is that possible? How did that happen? How is it that we're still talking about the fact that what he started was new, it was better? I'll tell you why we are still talking about what is new and better. Because it is certain they believed that Jesus started something new and better, and they were willing to give their lives to make sure that the world heard about it. And they went out to all the nations, and you know what they told them about? They told them about a new covenant, a new commandment, a new potential, a new perspective, a new reality, the very things that we've been talking about for the past seven weeks. They talked to them about grace, no strings attached, that grace requires nothing from you, save, receive it. Grace is a gift, and the only thing you have to do is receive it. Grace requires nothing from you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, nothing you can do to make God love you less. They told the world about grace. That's why we're talking about it today. They told the world about a new covenant, of a new commandment, of saying that you go love one another, as Jesus said, like I have loved you. And they told the world about this type of love where you evidence your vertical love for God by the way you express your horizontal love for people. They told them about the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that now lives inside of believers that makes it possible for them to love the way that Jesus loved them. Told them about grace and truth and how Jesus never let truth get in the way of grace and grace get in the way of truth and the church started to try to do that. <laughs> and if you've tried to do that recently, you'll find that it's very difficult and extremely excruciating to try to do that. And the church has struggled with that, and we still struggle with that. But the reason we're talking about these things, like a new reality, the fact that Jesus took our sins so that we could be forgiven, the reason we're talking about that is that the first generation, they did what Jesus told them to do, and they told people. 
that Jesus started something new, better, and it was certain. It was new, it was better, it was certain. And they understood what their role was. And it was to be witnesses, to tell people about the new exodus. Not the exodus where God through Moses saved the nation of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. But the new exodus where God through Christ has saved the world from sin and death. Because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That Christ rescued us from sin and death. From the penalty and the power of sin. And now our new reality is forgiven. Now, here's where I want to end it. Because this is the end of the series, but hopefully not the end of the conversation. But the followers of Jesus came along and they gave us handles. They gave us practical points that we could hold on to to let us know the answer to the question of now what? Now what? And even the answer to the question, so what? They gave us some new definitions that help us know how we are to move forward. Because that may be one of the most, one of the greatest gifts that Jesus and his followers brought to the world. They brought new definitions, new definitions to old terms. Let me tell you what they did. They gave the world a new definition of God, a new definition of God. And they pointed at people just like you and me. And they said, I don't know what you think of when you think about God. But when you think about God, you ought to think about him. And they pointed to Jesus. And they told people about Jesus. I don't know what you think of when you think about God. But from here on, when you think about God, you ought to think about God like this. And they directed them to Jesus. Because Jesus showed up on the planet and he served as the corrective to all of our wrong assumptions about God. You believe wrong about God, you will treat people the wrong way. You have the wrong idea of God, you have the wrong idea of people. But if you see God for how God truly is, then you will begin to see yourself as you truly are and you'll begin to see other people around you as they truly are. And they pointed people to Jesus. Matter of fact, one of the books that we've read out of through this series, the book of Hebrews, we don't even know who wrote it. But the writer of the book of Hebrews starts that entire book by saying that God throughout history has revealed himself in many different ways, including the prophets of old. But in these last days, God has revealed himself to us, the world, through his son, who is the exact image of God. Now, this is huge. The exact image of God. And here's what the writer was saying. Everything that came before this is a mere shadow. It's hard to tell what somebody's like by looking at their shadow. It's hard to tell what someone's character is like by looking at their shadow. It's hard to tell what someone's features are like by looking at their shadow. If you want to truly know what they're like, what do you look at? You look at the substance, not the shadow. And he says, Jesus is the substance. He is the greatest rev revelation of God. Now, follow me for just a moment. Jesus said that the greatest of the prophets was John the Baptist. He was the greatest born among women. So John's revelation of God in some way trumped the other prophets. But Jesus, his revelation trumped all other revelation of God. And this is why this is important. He says to Christians, then and now, whenever you think about the old covenant, whenever you read the Old Testament, you interpret the old in light of the new. You interpret the shadow in light of the substance. And if your interpretation of God, if your idea of God based on what you read in the Old Testament 
If your belief about God based on what you read under the old covenant doesn't look like Jesus, then you need to adjust your interpretation of God. You need to adjust your ideas of God because this man, the God man, is the exact revelation of God. No one has ever seen God at any time. John 1. Only the Son has made him known. That when you want to see what the Father is like, you look at the Son. Now, this, oh my gosh, I just want to throw my chair. From now on, if you want to know going forward after this series, if you want to know the right way to talk about God to your friends, to your family, before you get sucked into a conversation at school or in the classroom or at work or with family or friends about God, before you try to start describing God, before you start trying to find adjectives about God, you need to put your attention on Jesus. Because when you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. And if any other ideas that you're bringing to the table about God doesn't look like Jesus, then you need to change your ideas about God. That's what Jesus brought to the world. That's what his followers brought to the world. A new definition of God that looks like Jesus Nazareth. Then, not only that, but they gave the world a new definition of sin. It just wasn't about a list anymore. Now sin was about hurting someone. Sin was about hurting you and hurting someone else. Because sin, that's what sin does. It steals, it kills, it destroys. And you can't sin without hurting you, and you can't sin without hurting people that care about you. And when you hurt you and you hurt other people around you, you hurt the heart of God. And in redefining the way that we think about sin from here on, it changes the way that we talk about issues. It should change the way that we talk about social issues. It should change the way that we talk about people who disagree with us about those said issues. Because now we have a new definition that changes the way that we see sin and it changes the way that we see people that are caught up in sin, including ourselves. Now when we see sin, we see it as something that hurts someone and it will hurt the person around that someone. And then it hurts the heart of God. And if it breaks the heart of God, it should break my heart. Less Christians need to be angry. More Christians need to be brokenhearted. If sin breaks the heart of our Father, it should break the heart of our Father, should break our hearts as well. That when we see people caught up in sin, we are broken about it. We're not angry about it because they are hurting themselves and they're hurting other people. And this was different. If it's good for them, then it's good. If it's not good for them, it's not good. If it hurts them, it's sin. If it hurts somebody else, it's sin. Stay away from it. Well, that means I'm not gonna get to do everything I wanna do. Time out. <laughs> Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him learn to deny himself. Yes, following Jesus will cause you, will require you to deny yourself. Why? Because. What you may want may hurt you, and it may hurt someone else. So you got to learn to tell yourself no, and this was so, so new. They went out, and they redefined spiritual. When I grew up in the church that I grew up in, there were men and women in the church that I always heard people say, man, they're so spiritual, they're so godly, they're so spiritual, they're so godly, and all of them were old. So I thought, you know, godly and spiritual meant you got so old you didn't have enough energy to sin anymore. <laughs> like there were some things you just didn't struggle with anymore. I got so old, I, I'm just... I'm sanctified. I'm so tired, I'm sanctified. I don't even have the energy anymore. And that's what I thought. 
But they came along. The followers of Jesus came along. And they said, listen, when you think about spiritual, when you talk about who you think are spiritual people, when you think about who you think godly people are around you, you need to know that spiritual and godly is not about living well. It's about loving well. Pay no attention, Jesus' followers would say. Pay no attention to someone who prays a lot but doesn't love well. Pay no attention to them. Pay no attention to someone who knows a lot about God but doesn't love well. Pay no attention to them. Pay no attention to someone who can talk great, teach well, sing well, appear pious, but they don't love well. Pay no attention to it because spiritual and godly is loving other people the way that Jesus has loved you. It's the most godly thing you'll ever do. It's the most righteous thing you'll ever do. It is the most spiritual thing you will ever do. And that's the reason that in 160 and 251 AD, when the plagues hit the Roman Empire and the pagans were running out of town, you know who was running into town to care for the sick and dying? The Christians. Because they understood what godliness truly was. To love someone is to show God. To forgive someone who's wronged you is to show God. To be patient with those who irritate you is to show God. They redefined it for us. They redefined purpose. Purpose. That life is not rhyme and reason. We're just not here aimlessly or without purpose. No, Jesus gave us purpose when he said, go and make disciples. Do you know what the point of following Jesus is? It's not going to heaven when you die. That, that, that may be part of it, but that's another sermon on another day because for the first century Christians, it was not about going to heaven when they died. It was about bringing heaven to earth, ultimately, in, in finality. But it's not about heaven, per se, and though it is, purpose is about seeing other people become followers of Jesus. And this means that for the 70% of you who hate your job because 70% of Americans hate their job, that your job can have purpose and your job can have meaning. And everything that you're involved in, because you get up and you're late and now everybody's arguing with each other and everybody's leaving the house mad at each other and kids are half-dressed and breakfast was, I don't even know if they got breakfast or not, dropped them off, went to work. I hate the people I work with, but now I gotta go get the kids. Oh my God, do I have to get them all ready? And then I take them home and then it's like food. I'm gonna stop and get something and then it's time for bed. Do we, do we have to bath tonight? I mean, we bathed last week. Do we have to do it again? Uh, and put them to bed and by the time it's just like, you know, and is this my life? Is this all there is to it? No, when you understand you have purpose, everything you do has meaning. You get up early, you talk to your children, you spend time with them, you go to work, you interact with the people that irritate you, you see the people that you see, you go to the places that you go because you know that you have a purpose and you're there to do what you do because as a follower of Jesus, you wanna make other followers of Jesus. They redefine greatness. So greatness is not about power or prestige or position or gifts. Greatness is about serving. Jesus said, you want to be great? You must serve other people. And if you're not serving other people, Jesus says, you're not great. You're selfish. And selfish people are never great. If you're going through life thinking about what other people aren't doing for me and what I'm not getting and what I wish I had, you're selfish. And Jesus says, you are not great but the greatest among you will be the one who learns to serve others at expense of their own wants and their own desires. And then Jesus defined and redefined generosity, not 
for how much you give, for how much you keep. Jesus taught that your money, how you spend your money determines where your heart is. Jesus taught that the money we hold in our hand guides our heart. He said it's more blessed to give than receive. And when you go forward, be great and be generous. Serve others and understand that it's better to give than receive. Don't keep it for you. Use it for good and use it for God. They were fearless of death, hopeful for the future, and faithful in life. And we are better for it. He told them to go in all the world. And it says after this, after he told them to go to all the nations, it says he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside of them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And they left there that day believing that they could change the world because Jesus had started something new and better and certain. They were fearless of death. Why would they fear death when they've seen their best friend die and come back to life? They were hopeful because they heard Jesus say, if I go away, one day I will come again. And when I come again, I'm gonna make all things new, all things better. And they left there that day believing that they could change the world. What if we left here today? What if we ended this series today believing that we could change the world? What would happen? What if you lived fearlessly of death? What if you chose to look hopefully to the future to live faithfully in the present. You know what would happen? Once again, the world would be better for it. What if you took seriously to go and tell that Jesus came, he started something new, something better, and it's certain. It's the greatest story that the world has ever known. It's not too good to be true. It's too good not to be true. The best thing that we have is Jesus. Jesus the Nazarene, the one who healed the sick, the one who raised the dead, the one who spoke about a better life now and a better life to come. Jesus who promised a spirit inside of us which would give us the potential to do what we needed to do in the world where we live, to introduce to them the greatest personality that history has ever known, Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, the one of grace and truth, the one who offers forgiveness and freedom in this life, in the life to come, the one who says your sin will never be so bad, your sin will never be so great that my grace is not greater. And all you have to do is receive it. That's all you have to do is receive it. Father, speak. May we leave here today and believe that you are who you said you were. That we believe that Jesus, you are God's son, the Savior, the Messiah. 
that you offer something new and better. And it's certain. We believe that you died and we believe that you were buried and we believe that you were raised from the dead. And I pray we leave here today believing that the freedom you offer is better than anything else the world has or ever will offer. And may we get it right so the world will be better because of it. In Jesus' name.